So I'm going to talk today, as John says, about network journalism and social media, um, and it's going to take in uh, some of the latest research, so the report that I've just published for Reuters, um, but it'll also try and sort of set it in the context of that wider explosion in participation that we've seen uh, over the last three or four years, really, enabled by mobile phones, always on connectivity, and the rise of these giant uh, global social networks. Um, I'm going to look at what it means for journalism, um, but also actually what, what these sort of wider trends mean in terms of uh, you know, greater openness, greater transparency, sharing, interactivity. It's affecting so many aspects of life, businesses, government, you know, all of these, these areas are touched by it. So I'm going to start with uh, the London riots in August this year. Uh, so, you know, just one of just many recent stories where social media played a significant role. So we saw in that particular case uh, closed networks, not open networks, not Twitter, but closed networks like BlackBerry Messenger being used for actually organising the disturbances, getting people to the uh, to, to the uh, areas where they, were, they wanted to uh, to loot shops. We saw uh, journalists using this. We saw uh, police using it both for getting information while the riots were going on, but also distributing messages in those networks. Uh, and we saw politicians joining in too, uh, reinforcing social media's uh, role as part of the story. But I think, uh, for me personally, just living through uh, this story as I was in London, uh, it was extraordinary to watch how social media became a default way in which news was broken. Uh, so traditional media with print cycles or uh, even television, which has a sort of maximum capability of, of, of being in two places at one time with a split screen, uh, just simply couldn't keep up with a story that was literally erupting in every part of, of London at the same time. And so the story emerged through uh, the individual contributions from thousands of citizen camera phones on the street, uh, from uploads from people's mobile phones by text. Uh, and then you started to see how social media tools uh, like this Google Maps were able to then help people navigate in real time uh, what was going on in, in new ways. I mean, ways we've seen before in the Arab Spring and everything else, but you know, this, this is an example of, of new ways of navigating a real-time story. So uh, this is in particular, this particular case of a picture of an electrical store in North London uploaded by somebody with a little bit of text uh, that uh, could be useful for them. And uh, for me personally, Twitter was very much my eyes and ears. So whether you're following a hashtag like the London riots, which helps hold together uh, this, this information, or just putting um, my local area into the search box and seeing what came up um, in terms of what was going on absolutely at that time, uh, whether it was safe to go home. Uh, you know, this, this, uh, this was, for me, an absolutely jaw-dropping moment, you know, jaw-droppingly useful information, because you realize the power of this kind of real-time, user-generated stuff to tell stories. And as a journalist, that's what I thought that I did. So the, the other thing that struck me that evening, uh, particularly in talking to uh, young people, was that everyone had seen the same one or two videos. And that was, that was even before uh, those videos had been taken up and packaged and repackaged on the evening news. So it wasn't a broadcast of bringing the news to them, it was individual items of video which had found people through social networks. So this was a, a video of a Malaysian student who was assaulted in East London embarking, uh, had his jaw broken, and then uh, people helped him up. He was then uh, mugged and had something stolen from his, um, from his rucksack for good measure. So that video went around um, 
uh, in just a few hours. So uh, this particular version of it, three million views, and there were many, many other versions of it. And most of those views were, were literally uh, within a few hours of it being posted. Um, then this was a, an extraordinary uh, outburst. You may have seen this one from um, a, a black woman in Hackney who launched into this uh, 47 second tirade against the people doing the looting and sort of somehow summed up what many people felt, but in this incredibly authentic, uh, direct way and able to distribute that, or it was able to be distributed directly to, again, millions of people who watched that on many different um, versions on the internet. Uh, and then just as these new tools enable us to see these, these sort of dreadful things, it was also amazing to see how the next day um, it kind of flipped around and uh, it started to enable people to organize um, the fight back and to self-organize themselves to clean things up. So uh, Facebook was, was often the center of this kind of activity. So organizing uh, protests, organizing cleanups. Uh, so there was, was one there, I think, from uh, Kurdish people in North London organizing a protest, uh, come and assemble at this time so we can protest against the destruction of small businesses. Uh, you had hashtags again, trying to pull things together in terms of riot cleanup in particular areas, attracting lots of interest. And then, you know, these flash mobilization of people with brooms on the streets pouring into Camden, Clapham, uh, Croydon and other neighborhoods with their shovels and brooms is a great sort of symbol, which then, uh, again, spread all across the social networks and Flickr and Facebook and all the rest of it. And then Twitter. Um, again, in real time, uh, started to be used to appeal for um, food and clothing for people who'd been made homeless by particularly the fires in Tottenham, so a lot of people lost their, lost their homes. Uh, and so um, this was about pooling uh, people to come to a particular station with clothes, and then that would be, then be taken to a particular place. Uh, so again, you know, how some of these new tools were, were used for logistically uh, helping people in distress after after a horrific event. So if you put all this together, it, it's kind of extraordinary how powerful and commonplace social media now feels to many people, especially if you consider that uh, YouTube's been around for about six or seven years, Facebook for even less than that, and now you have prime ministers and media owners talking about it as if it's a threat to national security, or, or on the other hand, uh, you know, some kind of savior for democracy, the silver bullet that's gonna save newspapers and magazines. So, um, and as you know, these developments are, are pretty much uh, commonplace now around the world. As active citizens demand to be part of the story, no longer content to passively consume the output of news corporations with a monopoly of distribution. The game has changed. So we're now in the era of the active citizen, where that point at the end uh, that everyone, not everyone necessarily wants to answer back, but everyone expects to be able to answer back if, if they want to. And that's very different from the way things have been uh, in the first 15 years of the internet or so. So to start with, it was more about organizations and individuals using uh, the internet, using this new tool for one-way communication, for just getting a presence on the internet and effectively old-fashioned broadcast communication. But it was always designed by Tim Berners-Lee and the other scientists behind it as a two-way medium, as a read-write web, as, as a tool for collaboration and sharing. Uh, and what's happened really is that in the last five or six years, that promise has been realized through the creation of these incredibly simple, easy-to-use tools 
and then consumers getting used to those tools and, and the way in which they can use those tools to express themselves in a way that was kind of always intended by the people who started the internet. So now it's nothing that you don't have to be a scientist anymore to use this and to express yourself. You can just use one of these incredibly simple tools like YouTube. And um, you know, the disruptive change, the, the sort of revolutionary aspect of this was brilliantly summed up by that uh, Time magazine cover of 2007, I think it was, um, which was you know, this, this thing about you know, it's, it's you now, you control the information age, you are the person of the year, um, uh, as opposed to you know, some faceless businessman or government minister or whatever it would have been before. Um, and and it's, it's worth remembering that back in 2006-07, we were really just at the beginning, and, uh, and only half of what we now see was in place. So we had this creation of per what I call personal media, or user-generated content it's sometimes called. And um, here are some great examples of it. Obviously, we all remember the cats and the uh, people performing in bedrooms. This personal media, you can run your own channel uh, based on it. Um, you could send... Um, you could send videos, so, so going right back to the news videos, probably the tsunami in December 2004 was the, the first one which, which really led the news and was picked up by mainstream media. Obviously, 7-7 in 2005, um, the picture at the top, uh, one of 10,000 the BBC received on that day, um, uh, taken on a, a digital camera and then submitted to the BBC, and the video, again, uh, I think the first time actually that had led the six o'clock news was uh, was a video taken in the tube carriage, uh, and again uh, got out to the BBC, transcoded into forms that could be, could be transmitted. Um, but in, in in many cases, that was uh, it. Certainly wasn't as immediate as we see today, and in many ways, news broadcasters just saw that as another way of broadcasting. Let's just take this and and, and use it in our broadcasters. So the second big change, the second building block, is really what the internet has done to connectedness. So we've, we've always been able to see how places are connected, and that is uh, how roads and uh, places, trade routes, how that's really driven business and commerce over the years. What we've never been able to see is how people are connected, but now we can. So as well as uh, allowing this um, publishing of personal media, these tools, uh, the new tools, the social networks, now allow individuals to create profiles and to, here are some of mine, to link those profiles together and expose them to other people. And what that's doing is it's creating this incredibly rich set of data, which is driving a lot of very exciting things. So for individuals, it's very useful. We can see who we're connected to. We can have conversations with people we haven't had conversations with a long time. We can stretch out beyond geographical boundaries and share photos with families, all these kind of things. But then for these big new social media companies, um, it's essentially a massive new business. They can aggregate all of this data. Uh, it's kind of, this is the people's equivalent of Yellow Pages, and it's been built in the last five years. So leaving aside the sort of massive new businesses that we've been creating, um, it's really this combination of personal media, identity, and social connection that is really disrupting things. It's accelerating the trends towards uh, the individual and the consumer being more in control and it's putting businesses and governments on the back foot. So, of course, the Middle East has been held up as a great example of this. Uh, not that everybody in the Middle East uses Twitter. We know that's not the case. 
uh, it's just that, that sufficient number of these tools in terms of you know, short-form messages and mobile phones were there on the streets in Tunisia, in Egypt, to capture the events and then to communicate those globally. And the combination of those two things helped undermine the authorities and their ability to control what was happening, enabling things to be seen that had previously been unseen and leading to a new kind of transparency. And none of this would have been happening um, if it wasn't for the sheer size of these global networks. From nowhere, uh, Facebook, uh, the blue line at the top, uh, has grown to 750 million people, a network covering pretty much every country, possibly with the exception of China, um, Russia, and Brazil. Uh, it's a global phenomenon. Twitter is now 200 million people, and I've just put CNN on there just to get CNN on there just to give you uh, some sense of the scale. It, um, Facebook overtook CNN in 2008 in terms of global numbers. It's now about 20 times bigger, and in terms of uh, time spent, the average news site like CNN will have about four or five minutes a day in terms of engagement. Uh, something like Facebook has around 30 minutes a day. What is the figure for CNN? Is it about about five or six, maybe seven. Uh, time time spent is about five, six or seven. And in terms of kind of users or viewers? Oh, the number of users, yeah. in terms of that comparison, yeah. uh, I don't actually know, but it would probably be about 50 million, something like that, or 20, uh, it, it depends whether we're talking about monthly or daily. Daily, probably a lot less than that, probably about 20, uh, 10, 20 million. Mm -hmm. But these figures, you've got daily? The, these ones are daily. Oh, no, 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 these aren't daily. These are. Um, 750, these are Facebook figures for, um, sorry, I'm mixing things with this chart actually. The Alexa chart is, is a daily reach percentage, which is just the map the reach. So essentially what that's telling you is that 45% of uh, people in the world use Facebook every day. 45% of people in the world who are connected to the internet use Facebook every day, and around 8% um, use Twitter every day, and about 1% you know, use CNN every day. So that's, that's, that's a reach figure. The numbers on the right are the globally claimed figures from, um, from Facebook and Twitter, uh, and there will be one for CNN. So that, that, that will be you know, how many people access in a month or, or, or whatever, probably the sort of figures that they're using, or active users. It's possible the whole world or the connected world. Connected world, right, yeah. So, so the reach is connected to well, um, So, um, and then, you know, apart from the size of these networks, um, the other sort of disruption is really um, driven by consumer behavior. So by people's growing willing, willingness to participate. That bit about, you know, being prepared to answer back. We've seen a real shift in attitudes over the last uh, few years. So this is a, the annual survey done by the Oxford Institute based at Baylor College just up the road. And they do this every two years. They ask the same questions about you know, how you communicate, what kind of, um, uh, what kind of, uh, yeah, what ways you communicate online, essentially. And the big change is the second line in, which is visiting social networking profiles. So in 2007, that was 17%, so effectively minority interest. And the most recent one, which I've just done, is 60%. So it's gone from 17% of the UK population regularly updating the social media profile in 2007 to 60% of the UK population, um, online population again, sorry, online population, uh, regularly updating the social network profile. In 2011. In 2011, September 2011. And how, how big is the online population in relation to the whole population? I think we're about 90% connected, uh, connected in the UK now. So you're saying more than 50% more than are updating their own? 
profile every, every, every week. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, Britain is one of the most uh, connected um, countries in the world, but by no means unique. I mean, I just speak to Colombia, and uh, the figures are, are equally amazing. Um, but the, the interesting thing is not just about social networking, the point I wanted to make, if you actually look at all the participation metrics, this is people's ability to post uh, a photo, um, send, you know, write a blog, 23% uh, up from 6%, maintain a personal website. Um, so essentially what you've seen is a sort of change in consumer behavior where we are less deferential, more prepared to join in, to ask questions, to get involved, um, and you know these are just some of the headline measures. When you start to look at some of the other things, like you know organising petitions, which we'll come on to in a minute, you know we're really seeing a big, a big change in people's uh, desire to join in and get involved. So he here's um, here's another example of what all this means, uh, a global example. So. Uh, this is a petition organized, uh, about Ms. Stephanie's uh, anti-gay legislation. Uh, a petition organized by um, Abaz, um, which is a, a, a group which organizes these kinds of political petitions. And uh, in just a few days, it got 1.6 million signatures around the world. And that, in turn, raised a whole load of press interest and media interest. And the combination of all these things together resulted in uh, in a change uh, uh, and pressure on certainly to ditch that legislation. Second example is um, News International. So, of course, you know, in this case, again, traditional media played a huge role in what happened with the news of the world. But it was also the case that groups like Hacked Off uh, were again organising um, petitions and putting pressure on. Uh, in this case, on the advertisers, uh, and the advertisers who are uh, incredibly concerned about their image in this era of consumer power, uh, pulled out their advertising, and a huge part of Murdoch's empire uh, unravels. British Britain's biggest selling newspaper closed in just a matter of weeks, and nobody would have seen that coming. So this is not all about social media. I'm not saying this is all about social media, but it is about the growth of participation. It's about changing expectations amongst individuals. And what I observe is that most media companies, businesses, governments are really struggling to know how to deal with the pace of, of, of this change. So for journalism in particular, and for news organisation, I think it leads to a whole load of really quite fundamental questions. So firstly, what is our role? So if people can produce their own news, if they can distribute their own content, if people trust friends to tell them what's going on, uh, then what is, the, what is the point of editors? Secondly, uh, how do we engage in this world? So how, how does a traditional news organization engage in this world? How do we manage our presence in social networks? Should we be trying to break news, compete with Twitter uh, for breaking news? Should we be encouraging people to send us material, um, potentially putting their lives in danger? What are the ethical and practical issues? Uh, how do we authenticate and uh, verify material more efficiently? Uh, and how do we balance our time with so many competing demands? You know, do we do some serious investigative journalism or do we spend our time uh, promoting ourselves on Twitter? And then finally, uh, what happens next? So it's not just about how we organize for today, but given the pace of change, how do we manage ourselves as organizations to deal with a huge range of personal, media, semi-private and public networks and communities that are going to develop over the next few decades? How do we make sure that what we do is sufficiently future-proof? 
So a cool part of um, what I've been writing about for, for a number of years now is that, that, um, that media companies need to take these things seriously and indeed are starting to take them seriously um, essentially for three core reasons. So the first reason why media companies are interested is because it helps them tell better stories. So all that stuff around the tsunami and 7-7 uh, and the London riots, it's a way of uh, telling stories when you can't have individual correspondence in every part of the world at every major news event. And then also with Twitter, uh, using it as a, as a contact book. The second reason is, is that whole engagement channel challenge. So the mainstream media are simply not capturing uh, enough time, digital, to be able to monetize and sustain their business model. So four or five minutes a day uh, doesn't stack up against the sort of stickiness that Facebook's got with 30 minutes a day and all of that data, which which, which they believe will, will help them build a really successful business model, whereas online digital news organizations are really struggling to, uh, to manage that transition and to bring in enough money to sustain uh, quality journalism. So that's the second reason why they're interested. And then thirdly, they're interested because uh, these are giant networks. It's where people are spending their time. So in terms of distribution, it's a fantastic distribution channel. So essentially, when you boil it down, those are the three reasons why, why journalists are, are, are interested and journalistic organizations are interested. I think what we've seen in the last two, three years is an acceptance that the first one is kind of um, is kind of happening now. When I started writing, people used to laugh about Twitter. When they and when I started talking about it, they didn't take me terribly seriously. Um, and uh, nobody's laughing now. So you know, the Guardian has gone from 30 journalists on Twitter um, two years ago to 200. Um, I asked the news editor of the BBC News site how many how many political journalists were on Twitter. Um, the other day, said all of them. Uh, so they weren't necessarily um, all tweeting, but most of them were. But they were absolutely all using Twitter as a source and as a way of, uh, of getting information. So it has um, become. You don't have to go into news organisations now and and say you know you need to use social media for telling better stories. So a, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is um, is the subject of my of the report that I've just written, which is mainly about these second two things. So it's about the increasing engagement, the relationship with the business model, and it's about um, distributing content in the age of social discovery. So that's mainly what I'm going to talk about. But I will just give a few updates and examples of how journalists are using it uh, and really spreading their wings now uh, and starting to use it in a really sophisticated way for telling better stories. Um, so this is Nick Kristof, um, New York Times. Uh, he's been doing this for a very long time and um, it's kind of become natural to him. So he's arriving here in Tahrir Square and um, immediately getting stuck into telling stories in real time. So not, not having to wait for the next day to having an influence in the journalistic world till his column is published in the New York Times and then people read it and, and take note of it. But instantly he's arriving, he's listening, he's engaging in a conversation. So suddenly, here are tools that enable you know, great newspaper journalists like Nick Christoph to take you right to the heart of the action, uh, using text, pictures, videos, 
and um, and he's having a lot of fun and and really getting stuck in. So so this kind of real time involvement. He is no longer constrained by the fact he works for a printed newspaper. He is delivering huge value to audiences as a multimedia journalist, which is very much how he sees things. So here's another example. Um, so this is Laura Kunzberg, who uh, was until recently political correspondent with uh, BBC for News 24, which is a 24-hour news channel. She's now just moved to ITV, but in um, she went to the States during the election and um, she looked at the Obama campaign and they came back and said, you know, I've just got to do this Twitter thing. And uh, over the last two, three years with BBC, she built up a community of 58,000 following her, people who are, who are really interested and engaged with politics. And uh, she really, again, like Nick Kristof, not constrained by the fact that she's a television correspondent, uh, where the format made it very hard for her to do this kind of inside track thing that you see on the screen uh, to give um, some of those personal details that she's finding out every day. And so she found Twitter a really good way of identifying a really engaged audience that wanted that kind of stuff and providing another outlet to those people, uh, as well as providing an amazing channel of getting her breaking news out and raising her personal profile. So when she put a piece of news that she found out, either herself or with BBC, literally it went around the Westminster village, Westminster Wire, within minutes because of those 58,000, you know, uh, a few hundred were the top uh, correspondents and it also went on to um, Politics Home which is um, the aggregated place where a lot of the tweets uh, go. So essentially if she wanted to get news out instantly, uh, Twitter just enabled her to get that news out incredibly quickly to the other journalists but also to, uh, to the MPs who, who are increasingly on Twitter as well. So for her, uh, she found it extraordinarily empowering. Again, not thinking of herself as a television journalist anymore, but thinking about herself as a political journalist, using all of these different tools to reach different kinds of audiences. In this particular case, a very, very engaged audience with politics. And here's a third example. Um, so this is not even a correspondent at all. Um, the guy called Neil Mann, who know, who's known on Twitter as field producer. He's a desk producer. Uh, with Sky, and over the last few years, he's he's become one of the most innovative and powerful users of Twitter in British journalism. And not just British, British journalism. He's gained a reputation all over the world as a journalist. Uh, but he doesn't appear on any television screen. He has no byline. Um, uh, he's done it all through Twitter, and it's really interesting. Um, what, one of one of his, um, if you look at how he works. Um, one of the interesting ways is the way he uses Twitter as an electronic contacts book. So he started off covering UK politics, and then um, he's moved to foreign uh, coverage for Sky. And so when a big story blows up, or he thinks a story is going to blow up, so Yemen was a recent example he gave, where Yemen was becoming very hot. Um, what he did was he essentially identified who the top people were on uh, Twitter on Yemen and most of them were journalists or bloggers or whatever. And he would um, basically sign them up, he'd follow them, and then he would also try, like any good journalist, he'd strike up some conversation with them on Twitter. So he'd direct message them, he'd um, send them a message, he'd start to ask them questions, so engage in a dialogue with them. And what that provided for him was essentially a personal news wire about what was happening in Twitter that was more effective than any wire that you could have got from AP or AFP or Reuters. 
And so what he found was that the stories came to him and that he was able to do this incredibly quickly. Al Jazeera do this in a different way, but they do it um, in a much more systematic way by um, essentially when they get to start up in a new country like Turkey, they identify all the bloggers, they invite them in, they give them flip cameras, they, um, they turn them into advocates for Al Jazeera. It's the same thing, but this is done on a kind of individual basis. Uh, so that's one thing he did. And the second thing he does is that he, ret- he started to retweet uh, news scoops because he found that, that you know, scoops were coming to him all, from all over the world around foreign stories which he got into. He started to retweet that. You've probably seen Andy Carvin in, in the Middle East doing the same with building up a massive global reputation around the Middle East crisis and essentially being the person who is asking questions passing on the best, most recent, most up-to-date information. It seems sometimes 24 hours a day. So it's just kind of an individual news channel uh, about the Middle East. That's what Andy Carvin does. And Neil Mann does that around sort of big, breaking foreign news stories. Um, and so he's just kind of built up this amazing uh, reputation. Again, the numbers aren't huge. I think he's got about 20,000 uh, followers now, but, but they're all incredibly influential. And, uh, and he's not even a camera person. So um, this whole idea of, um, of journalists not necessarily investigating but actually curating the best of the social web um, is also practiced elsewhere with um, the development over the last two, three years on news websites uh, pretty much all over the world now of the live blog. And the live blog is a mixture. So you had Andrew Sparrow, who, who was one of the sort of foremost proponents of this in the political arena um, during the election last year. Um, the BBC does this a lot. And you can see them. Uh, this one was around the, the wedding. They're incorporating what's happening on the ground with some of the back channel, some of the best of the jokes, some of the best of the uh, of the context that's coming from elsewhere, picked up from a whole load of social media channels, filtered, moderated, and then uh, relayed back in a live stream to, um, to millions of people. And um, it's the same basic idea, you know, asking questions, uh, having a conversation, rather than just one-way broadcast, involving people in to build up greater loyalty, to get greater stickiness, greater engagement. You know, these are some of the big drivers behind what's going on. And for um, for Alan Rusbridger, who, who probably is uh, the uh, the biggest advocate for this kind of change in journalism, it's about journalists stopping arrogantly assuming that they know everything, uh, but there are actually other people who know more than them. That uh, journalist organisations need to open up and let other voices in, and the journalism would be better for that if, if, if more people are involved. Um, and he's been talking about this for, for, again, two to three years, but you're really starting to see it happen now, not just with things like live blogs, but um, which are amazingly successful, by the way, in, in audience terms, uh, but in the way in which his journalists now change culturally and are much more asking questions and working with audiences on a whole range of things. So, of course, a lot of this is uh, creating some challenges in terms of how you do it in a way that's consistent with the trust and values that the people expect from a news organisation. This is just one example um, of uh, pictures sent around uh, just after the death of Bin Laden in social networks and on the, on the internet. Um, and this one was picked up and um, by Daily Mail Online, New York Post, put it on the front page, uh, picked up from the internet. Um, and of course, it wasn't true. It's not, it's not a real photograph. It's a Photoshop fake. 
which um, many reputable news organisations were able to work out because they put it into some software which says, you know, this picture's clearly been doctored and it's been reused a number of times before. So some of these fakes are difficult to sort out, some of them are easy to sort out. This one was actually very easy to sort out. And, and all of this is, is leading um, critics like Andrew <coughs> King, uh, in his book, The Cult of the Amateur, a couple of years ago, to talk about the dangers of all of this, the, the negative impacts on the quality of information, you can't trust anything. Uh, um, and so, so the book caused something of a stir, it raised a lot of very valid points. Um, I think uh, the way that things have unfolded hasn't, hasn't borne out those fears. The world hasn't generally come crashing down. And uh, you know, wrong information does appear on Twitter, but it's also corrected very quickly. And it's fair to say that wrong information uh, has appeared in mainstream media organisations in the past, way before Twitter, and uh, and that will continue to happen. It's about good journalism. It's about proper verification. It's about understanding what your audience expectations are. Um, and I think that what we have seen in the last two, three years is the development of much better filtering of that information by mainstream organisations, putting in place a lot of new structures to do that, and standards, uh, and learning how to verify and collect, contextualise, or just label when, when you don't know, when you're not exactly sure uh, whether this is right or wrong, but you think it is. And that process is still going on. So that's just a little bit about um, telling better stories. Um, but the, um, the stuff I've written recently is really focused on what happens next and deals with uh, how you engage people and how you effectively distribute and then seed that content. So one of the things that I did was um, uh, to get information for this latest research is I had access to the log files of four news organizations. Um, I also looked at traffic flows between social networks and news companies to see what the effectiveness of that was and, and what was going on and how that changed over time. Uh, I also did a certain amount of data mining from Twitter, so looked at how news stories in particular were spread in Twitter and which kind of news stories were spread. And then finally looked at various sort of survey data, uh, some of which I've shown you already from the Oxford Internet Institute and other places. And the um, and the sort of the core, you know, when you put all this evidence together, uh, one of the key things that's, that, that screams out at you is that social media referrals to news organisations are growing incredibly quickly. So the BBC figures show about five times growth in two years uh, from social networks. This is referrals of news stories that are in social networks. You click on it, it comes back to a new site, uh, five times bigger. Uh, Facebook themselves talk about 300% increase, so three times in the last year since the introduction of their Facebook like buttons, which have gone on most news websites. That's driven a massive spike in uh, referrals of the, the planting of news stories within social networks and the referrals back to, to, to news sites. Um, and then, in general, um, Hitwise figures, experienced Hitwise figures, which look at the overall trends, show an average of 7.5% um, of all social media referrals, on, uh, all referrals and asks from social media. Still smaller than search, but really very significant now. 7.5%. 7.5 on average, yeah. And then more widely, we're seeing, we're starting to see the, the first drop we have seen in the, in, in the amount of people searching for material. So uh, for the last six or seven years, you've seen Google figures going up and up, and fewer people going to individual websites, and you're starting to see a reverse of that trend. And that's, uh, we think, a plausible explanation for that is the increasing amount of sharing, of social sharing that's going on, allied to push services in general. So that's also sharing through email and a whole range of other push services that I mentioned. 
So uh, in terms of who's doing best, uh, so these are UK figures. Uh, so within the sort of Hitwise Experian world, you can see where that traffic is going. So this chart shows, um, well, it shows a couple of things really. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the traffic from Facebook to news sites. The first thing it shows is only 1% of the traffic goes to news sites. So as you know, people in Facebook do a lot of different things. Mm. Uh, so only, <laughs> uh, sorry, 1% of Facebook traffic goes to BBC News, mm. so not to news sites. And news sites, if you add up all these different ones, it's a lot more than that. But, but um, 1% of all, where people click next after Facebook is BBC News, and that's, that's by far the biggest. But you're also seeing how some news organizations, like the Daily Mail, for example, are starting to really take advantage over other organizations. And that's probably not because they're doing anything terribly clever. It's probably just because the type of entertainment material they're putting out online fits very well with that Facebook um, demographic. <coughs> the other thing you'll notice there is the red line at the bottom is the Times, which, is, which went behind a paywall in June last year. And uh, you can see that it's completely disappeared off the charts. Not surprisingly, because um, although they have uh, comments out there, people don't click on them um, because they'd have to pay. In terms of bringing some of this to life, this is a, a, an interesting story published by The Economist late last year, uh, slightly provocatively titled uh, Disposable Academic. Uh, it accounted for 1% of the entire website traffic for um, almost two months, this one story. And the reason is it was passed around uh, a whole, whole host of blogs, social media networks, email, and probably university mailing lists. <laughs> uh, so but it's a, essentially an example of these new um, trends extending the shelf life of a news story in a way that simply wouldn't have happened before. So it, you know, before this kind of stuff, uh, it would have been a one-day phenomenon on the internet, and essentially that's extended the life of it and reached a whole load of niches that previously wouldn't have known about it, and that's all through social sharing. Uh, another example was uh, Al Jazeera during the um, during the Arab Spring. So Al Jazeera, as you know, has really struggled to get cable television distribution in the United States. And uh, one of the things it did was launched a hugely effective Twitter hashtag sponsored campaign uh, to buy the sort of top terms that people were searching for in Twitter, like you know Mubarak or Egypt crisis or Tahrir Square or whatever. And um, what they were doing was they actually had, for 18 days, they had a, a combined marketing editorial newsroom around Twitter. And they would be looking at what, what was in the news, and they would basically then write a tweet. And then if it didn't go automatically to the top of the hashtag, they would then buy search terms against it. They would buy it uh, to make sure it, it sat at the top of the... So that's that work, you can buy Because Twitter have introduced a business model, it's what it's called sponsored tweets and you pay ten, you know, thousand pounds or whatever for particular terms. It's, there's, there's value on those terms. It's like, it's like um, Google ads, you know, you auction particular terms. And so news organizations can buy those things. But it's essentially editorial content being used as, as marketing. They combine that and then the links went through to the live stream. So the whole aim of this was not to raise the profile of Algeria, it was getting people, particularly in America, to the live stream. They combined that with opening up through, um, through YouTube the live stream of their television coverage um, and using Creative Commons licenses to allow other people to take that as well. And the combination of those two things increased the traffic to their live stream 2,500% during the Egypt crisis. 
20, 20-25% of it was in the target market in the United States, which is what they were trying to do to get distribution and influence in the United States. Um, so, so really another case where uh, they call it the most successful social media campaign ever, and uh, we're starting to see again the social media really driving genuinely different outcomes. So this is Al-Nazeri English? Al-Nazeri English. This was very much Al-Nazeri English um, to try and, and, and get them on the stream. Uh, and, and across the industry, we're seeing um, increasingly sophistication in the way in which content is now seeded in these social networks, uh, as well as recognition that more resource needs to be put into it. So we talked about Al Jazeera. Um, the Economist, for its, um, has 10 Twitter accounts, very systematic about the way it does it. Everything is manually tweaked, so it takes the stories in the, in the newspaper or the blogs, and they tweak them to be suited for the social media. They also use some software to match up what people are looking for, so they send out stories that are more appropriate, and they use a whole lot of interns in New York to do this process. So it's very cheap too. Um, BBC News is also refocusing. They, they used to put out a lot of um, automated RSS feeds to Twitter, uh, which is pretty much ineffective. Um, it's about, um, in some recent research, which shows that you get about 10 to 20 times more effectiveness by manually curating those things and really thinking about what you're putting out. So um, both the BBC and New York Times are really work putting much more effort into manual, even at the time of 20% cuts, into creating 24-hour manual breaking news, um, which is their sort of key USP globally and in the UK, and make sure that they are, each one of those messages is crafted really well for Twitter. Um, and The Guardian thinks it's been focusing too much on Twitter, which is probably true, so, so they, um, they recognize they need to do more on Facebook. So you may have noticed last week they just launched their first social uh, application on Facebook, uh, which is uh, using a lot of the personalization um, uh, and social stuff that you get on Facebook and essentially representing The Guardian, but in a social context. The Independent's done the same thing. And uh, mainstream media in general, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, how uh, mainstream media is marginalized by it, but actually if you look at the statistics, mainstream media uh, content is really the lifeblood of what's going on in social media. So about 70% of the links through a study that was done in 2010 uh, in the UK, about 73% of the links sent around in social media news links were from mainstream media organizations, so many newspaper websites, uh, BBC, etc. And in terms of breaking news, even though many breaking news stories don't start with, with mainstream media, uh, this research in the United States of HP Labs showed that 70% um, of breaking news stories uh, go back to one of about 20 breaking news accounts of mainstream companies, which is one of the reasons the BBC and New York Times are focusing on their breaking news account more, because um, because that really seeds and helps define the conversation even in Twitter. So it's a complex story where you have personal media, but you also have mainstream media actually becoming now very effective in controlling the conversation in social media as well. So uh, another thing I looked at was, um, uh, yeah, so another thing I, I, I looked at here was the um, question about what kind of stories work in social networks. So I studied a whole load of main, uh, mainstream news organizations to see what kind of stories worked well. So you know, what are, were 
particular stories doing well were mainstream media changing what they wrote uh, to reflect the fact that people wanted particular kinds of stories. And um, these are, yeah, so the, the broad headlines are that uh, it's actually quite a positive story, I think, for journalism, because the things that really do well are things that are original. So each one of those is incredibly original. So the, the Telegraph cartoons, the map cartoons, which are fantastic, are incredibly shareable, incredibly original. And that's the kind of thing that we set around. Uh, Channel 4 do this fact check fact check blog, which is a really distinctive, different thing. And it's these kind of things that you can't get anywhere else that are really um, thought-provoking that tend to get uh, sent around. Um, Jolene Gibson, who used to run the Guardian website, um, says that social media is really about mood. So it's about things that make you laugh or cry or things that make you angry. Those are the things that you, you, you really want to share. Um, which I think is an interesting way of, of looking at it. It's probably just a little bit more nuanced because actually, uh, if you look, if you categorise the things, it kind of falls into this kind of list. So big news is um, uh, plays incredibly well. Obviously, things that people don't know, things are shocking, surprising, um, death of Bin Laden, etc. Uh, unusual angles, so original insight. Um, you know, an amazing picture, you know, these are things that um, the people see and then they say, you've got to see this, so those angles on a big story. Uh, the inside track, so we saw Laura Kunzberg inside track, people like that. And then linked surprise, there's something coming up, um, little tease, the old-fashioned marketing techniques, uh, those kind of things tend to work well. One of the other things that I do in the report is look at the differences between Facebook and Twitter, which I think is incredibly important, and what kind of content works in each network. So Facebook is, as we saw earlier, much, much bigger. So it's about 15 times bigger in the UK. And it's also, for the reasons we talked about earlier, far harder to engage people with news. It's not fundamentally about news, Facebook. Um, so you have to work pretty hard to get their attention. Twitter, on the other hand, is very different. It's very much, as we know, where news gets broken. Uh, and it's also... Um, uh, where a very small core of people uh, produce about 80% of the content. So within Twitter, um, that 7% produce most of the content. And this is not a representative group of people. This is not the general population curve. Uh, these are very active, they're very focused on, uh, on news. This is basically what they look like. So the blue line in the middle is the sort of average curve. And then the green line is what it looked like about a year ago, and the red line where it is today. So a lot of liberal opinions, a lot of liberal people, uh, a lot of city dwellers, people. Uh, but essentially, you know, the, the core point is it's made that 7% core is made up of a lot of uh, professionals. And if you're talking about news, there's a lot of PR, a lot of journalists. Um, uh, it's professionals. Uh, and so essentially what you're talking about in Twitter is you're talking about uh, talking to the influencers, and with Facebook, you're trying to reach mainstream audiences. And so media companies in general have two different strategies. So for, for Facebook, it's about how do you engage general messages, and so tone of voice needs to be different. And for Twitter, it's absolutely about engaging the influencers, and then they hopefully will pick that up and amplify it in, in different ways. Um, just to sort of reinforce that in terms of the differences, if you look at the stories, so this was the same week looking at headlines of particular stories. So Facebook, uh, they were interested in the fact that Bin Laden had died. That was very interesting in Facebook. 
but after that it was the man trying to board the train with the pony. Um, whereas in Twitter, um, they were interested in every single little nuance of what was happening. Um, so every every twist of the uh, the live pages, those live blog pages around what was happening, um, what happened next, you know, the next little uh, chapter in the story. Uh, it was news, news, more real-time news. So they are very, very different uh, networks, and uh, so the strategies need to be um, very different. This is. Uh, this is how the death of Bin Laden spread on Twitter. So it's, it started with a tweet, uh, the top left, by a former aide to Donald Rumsfeld called Keith Urban. Um, so it didn't start with mainstream media journalists. It started um, with, uh, with somebody else because Obama was, um, they were trying to keep it quiet, basically, and he was trying to finish writing his speech, and it took him a couple of hours, actually. So in the meantime, all this kind of stuff happened. So Keith Obama put out a tweet, and then, very interestingly, it was picked up by um, loads of other people, but uh, not many people followed Keith Obama, but it was picked up by Brian Stelton, who's a New York Times uh, journalist and one of the most influential, and, and it, when it was picked up by him, that it suddenly went viral incredibly quickly around the States. So, um, so can you say how it was picked up by him? Because, because he, he followed Keith Obama. So he followed him? He yeah. knew him? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yes, exactly. It's because he's, he's well connected with, 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 all these kind of people, with all these kind of people. And so this again goes back to what is the role of mainstream journalists. Sometimes mainstream journalists, their role is to pick something. Now, his paper, the New York Times, couldn't actually say anything publicly. But on Twitter, he's able to relay this comment, so this is what this, this, this guy's said and, and, and pass it on. Uh, so by the time that Obama uh, got up to announce it, of course, you know, many people in America already knew what had happened. So people called this, you know, another Twitter moment. It was the death of mainstream media again. Um, and uh, but what's interesting is when you dig into it, that's not it's not really uh, a replacement for mainstream media. These these are some of the comments uh, from Americans about how they got the news. So they saw the post on, on Facebook, verified it on the New York Times, yelled for my fiancé to turn on the news. This is a fairly typical use journey. I saw it on Facebook, read about it on the NPR news app, and then turned on my TV. So, uh, so in many ways, you know, so, so social media is not a replacement for mainstream media. These are complementary. In many ways, social media is, is the alert, it's just the alerting measure, mechanism that draws people back to traditional sources, certainly on a big story for this, for verification, for uh, explanation, for context. And, uh, and that's how many media companies now redefine their role. So you know, many media companies thought they were in the breaking news business. Now, now they realize they're in the verification business and the contextualization business. It's a little bit like newspapers realize you know, they can't keep up with, with breaking news, so they've moved more to Textual and uh, front pages that kind of take a stand back approach. So, um, uh, excuse me, Matt. So the New York Times uh, reporter he just put the tweet by the government guy without really knowing whether it's true, but he shared it on the Twitter because yeah. he was sort of thinking that they can verify it later for the paper. But by spreading it, the Twitter tweet, he just sort of spread the information out there. Yes, he um, he spread it out there. I, I don't know what he was um, what he was he was thinking or whether. But um, normally, yeah. um, he he would have known Keith Urban yeah. and he would have taken a judgment that this was a serious guy who was connected to Donald Rumsfeld and he probably knew something and therefore it was worth him 
if it wasn't going to undermine his credibility, because it's all built on your own personal credibility yeah. in these networks, by tweeting it because it was probably true. So if he thought it wasn't true, if he thought it wasn't reputable, he wouldn't have done it, probably. But I'm, I'm speaking for him. I don't know. Generally how it works. So here's one more example of the same thing. So um, this was from earlier this year, and it, again, it shows the same thing about social media not replacing mainstream, but how they feed off each other. Uh, this was the case of some injunctions earlier this year when uh, the footballer, Match United footballer Ryan Giggs, uh, amongst others, was trying to keep quiet the fact he'd had an alleged affair. And um, what, what happened is we can see people with this chart which shows the mentions, the number of mentions of the word Ryan Giggs in Twitter. Um, and you can see um, the story beginning and suddenly there's a big spike as people start saying... Uh, using the word Ryan Giggs on, on Twitter. And then um, what you then see is the mainstream media effectively picking that up from Twitter. They can't mention his name at the stage, but they start talking about this issue. And uh, every single one of those spikes, which remember is a spike in Twitter, it coincides with the end of a television news bulletin. So the television news bulletin ends and people go online to find out who the footballer is because television has stimulated the interest in the story and then they go online. And when you go online, um, it's pretty easy to find out his name. It's, if you use trending tools, this is a trending, trending tool that pulls out automatically the most popular words in Twitter. The word Ryan Giggs or Giggs is, uh, just screams out at you, so you know what's going on. And then, um, and then it, it kind of goes on in cycles, essentially. This, this was one of the biggest ever increases in the UK, the number of regular Twitter users. It led to this big spike in the number of people joining Twitter to find out who the footballer is. So uh, sometimes it's mainstream media that is verifying things. Sometimes it's Twitter that is verifying things that have been brought to their attention by mainstream media, but they can't report. Uh, so it's a pretty complex relationship where professional and amateur versions of events coexist, they feed off each other in ways that raise new challenges for the law, for traditional judgments and working practices of journalists, governments, uh, and media organizations. So just a few conclusions. Um, so I think we're, we're sort of seeing a new ecology of news. So professionals, individuals, personal media coexisting in this uh, increasingly complex open relationship uh, where they feed off each other, amplify each other. And it's not just about competition and coexistence. It's working out some of the big challenges now are how you manage those interfaces um, and how you manage the, 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 the ethics, the, the standards, the verification um, in, this, in this difficult world. Secondly, I think there's this, um, this real premium for those individuals who can become uh, trusted hubs, what I'm calling network nodes in this world. So Brian Stelter of the New York Times is a very good example. He's built up this amazing trust in the network, um, and he's learning how to use that to tell stories in new ways. Andy Carvin's another example. Neil Mann, I talked about earlier, is another example of these Robert Peston, uh, really effective network hubs. And that raises lots of new opportunities for journalists. It also raises lots of challenges for the people who employ them. Social media, thirdly, is incredibly important now for traffic building and engagement. And in that sense, an important 
uh, in terms of helping to sustain the business models that help sustain quality journalism. So it's not just about what happens in the network, which is very hard to measure sometimes, it's actually about really hard measures about the value that is now coming back to those organizations. So like the Al Jazeera example I talked about earlier. And then finally, there are, there are those big commercial questions which I haven't talked much about in this presentation, but uh, there's, a, there's a chapter on, on this in the, in the book. Uh, if people are going to distribute news via social networks, you know, cutting yourself off from the conversation like the Times did is very, very hard. And most media companies are now looking at models that take into account social media. So the New York Times paywall, for example, is much more transparent to social media than it is if you're just coming from search. Um, because what they're trying to do is to get some referrals and influence without losing uh, subscription income. So that's, uh, that's probably enough to stimulate a bit of discussion, hopefully. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a, a roundup of all of those key issues around you know, how social media is affecting storytelling, how it's affecting engagement and business models, and how it's affecting the world of distribution and how you now find news in, in this new connected world.